Hello, I am Marlon Diaz. And I'm Taylor Walker. And this is the Keeping It Local podcast. From the southernmost point of Florida. To the panhandle. We will be talking local politics as well as issues that affect everyday people. Taylor, are you ready for today's episode? Let's do it. Awesome. We'll be right back. We are live. How are you, Taylor? I'm doing great, Marlon. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for all of our listeners for being so patient. We did have a bit of a glitch in our last episode, and I know that Taylor gave you a little walkthrough this afternoon before our recording. Um, So we want to make sure that you know that we're back better than ever. We're with this great new system. And we're hoping for great things to go along the way. And we're, great. we're very happy to have Logan from the American Conservation Coalition, which will be joining us in just a moment. So Taylor, take it away. Yes, sir. My goodness, it's good to have you, Logan. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How are y'all? Oh, gosh. We are, we are hanging in there like a hair in a biscuit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess I just wanted to open it up. Uh, before, before we started recording, y'all, we were talking all about wildlife and how crazy and uh, diverse Florida is. And I know that's kind of how you got your start in politics. You have a, a great connection to wildlife and to the earth and to agriculture. So uh, how did you get your start? Yeah, so I originally, uh, I was born in, uh, in Texas, and I didn't move to Florida until I was 13, 14 years old. I started ninth grade in Florida, so I think the development-type stages of life was all here in Florida, and, and I fell in love with the wildlife. You know, it's, uh, we don't really get any hiking and mountains and all that kind of stuff, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful walk, and uh, no matter if it's gators, if it's turkeys, if it's Florida panthers, or even down south, crocodiles, it's, uh, we have a very diverse uh, land and environment here in Florida, but, you know, just Moving here and, and falling in love with the land is kind of how I got in, uh, started in Florida, and but it all started with agriculture. I, when I moved here, my stepmom enrolled me in the FFA, so uh, Future Farmers of America or the National FFA organization, and and I simply asked her at open house day, uh, ninth grade. I said, "What is this?" And all she could say was FFA, Future Farmers of America. And I was like, "Well, what is it? What will I do?" And she couldn't quite give me the answer, but she said, "You'll see," and and boy, was she right. Um, I started showing pigs, uh, cows. I got involved with career development events such as like Palmanship Procedure, Forestry, Livestock Judging, all kinds of things. And and those things we think that may not be as important in life, but really it's the foundations of of us, of what we wear, what we eat, what we do, where we live, the natural resources and even materials that we use every single day, supply chain, all of that. So I was super lucky to, to have my stepmother put me through FFA and get involved in it. And, and I'm glad that it became my little circle and, and I got super involved in it. So that's pretty much how I got started, you know, just the love for the land and, and learning about it and building that passion about it. I have to tell you, Logan, you are talking my language. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because in, in high school, I too was part of FFA. Oh. Um, I myself did a lot of the uh, husbandry when it came to the goats. We had a barn with goats, cattle, um, chickens, rabbits, you name it. Um, I witnessed about three births of goat. Um, and uh, I had a lot of involvement when it came to the showing of the chickens. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're, you're talking my language here. I mean, <laughs> good. You, but of course, 
because of politics and because of my passion for politics, that that world of, of FFA and wanting to become a veterinarian assistant definitely steered my way to politics, and here I am now. So my question to you now is how did you get involved in politics, in Florida politics? Yeah, so I think it's real interesting for me, or uh, in a different aspect than most, but whenever I got involved with the uh, FFA, Future Farmers of America, I, I ran for chapter leadership. I was elected, uh, did a few different uh, positions throughout my time in high school, and while being a, an officer in the local chapter, I ran for district president. I was elected by my peers and then later on ran for state office and elected by my peers again through campaigning and banquet visits and speeches and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, just being a servant leader, you know, I got involved in FFA and, and I grew a passion for agriculture in, in our, our state and our lands uh, and just wanted to continue to do that. And then just wanted to be able to serve, wanted to be able to be a leader. And, and I enjoyed getting to meet people and talking to people and being a, a good voice for the different policies or situations that were going on and also kind of share my story. And and I like to think that's a lot of agriculture is to share our stories and share the beautiful, beautifulness of the lands and, and how agriculture is, is done, the, whether it's animals, whether it's crop production, those kind of things. And so that's uh, so I got hired after I graduated from the University University of Florida. I got hired by the Florida Farm Bureau Federation, which is in Gainesville. Uh, but I got hired as a district fields rep. So I moved to South Florida. Uh, I lived in, or I still do live in Melbourne. Uh, got a, just bought a house, so I'm I'm permanently stationed there for now. Uh, but I worked with seven different counties, and I got to see even more about agriculture and in the different parts of Florida, and and got to meet more people. And there's a lot of issues that are going on throughout Florida, and whether that's infrastructure in the cities, whether that's education, agriculture, environment, there's all types of things. And and I like to think that all these different diverse situations I'm put in, and I get to see that I'd like to tell that story, and I like to represent my community, and and that's kind of led me to where I am now. Uh, I ran for Melbourne City Council. I wasn't, uh, I didn't get elected, but the number of people I was able to see and, and be able to share the story and, and get more involved in the community was awesome. And and it's it just amazes me that some people uh, want to sit back and relax and, and watch all the politics. And then some of us are crazy enough to get involved with it. Um, so I have a lot of fun. And so we'll see what comes next. But that's kind of the, the route that I got uh, into politics. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that drive for public service and that drive to, to steward and to care for people in the communities that you live in. Um, that's that's very apparent in the work that you've done. Uh, you're also a zoning and a planning board member for Brevard County. Um, what does that entail and how does something like that affect everyday people's lives? Yeah, so specifically with the planning and zoning for Brevard County, uh, it's been interesting. It's been a lot of fun and it's definitely was a learning curve uh, coming from University of Florida or college and uh, working in the field and then getting more involved with the county. And it, it's cool to think that I have a, a play a big role in the development of the county. And through COVID, uh, through the pandemic, Brevard County grew. I mean, we have uh, this, we're the Space Coast. We have a lot of engineering. We have a lot of infrastructural needs and development which isn't always the best with uh, our conservational roots and agricultural roots, but it's going to happen. You know, we have over a thousand new residents in Florida a day, and I like to paint the picture that that's a new Tampa every single year. And how many times can we stamp the size of Tampa? How many times can we stamp that across the state of Florida? How much longer will we have the natural beauty of Florida if we don't conserve it and if we don't uh, take care of it and manage it? Well, 
while on the uh, planning and zoning board, I'm able to voice my opinion and be able to talk about the conservational needs or uh, talk about septic and sewer situations. You know, some new developments will come in and they'll want to put in a septic system. And it's, no, we, we can't do septic anymore. We're seeing the impact that septic tanks have taken on the on Florida and on our aquifer. So I, I try my best to be able to push sewer and make sure that we have a, control, a controlled, contained uh, process for our waste uh, and making sure that we can keep our state clean, keep our waterways clean and not add extra nutrients that are uh, building up different bacterias and hurting our environment. So, you know, I think that's the biggest impact, but also it, it kind of, you, you have a big part to play in development of your cities and of your county, because if a new business wants to come to the area, they have to come to planning and zoning and say, Hey, here's our plans. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're thinking. What's, what are y'all's thoughts? Uh, what's the best way to go about this? And do we have your approval? And and the committee and the board of directors for the planning and zoning in Brevard County are kind of the first leg and the first forefront before the county commission. So the county commissioners have the ultimate say whether they go with our recommendations or if they go against them. Uh, but we still have a very uh, in, a, a good influence on the direction that Brevard County is uh, developed and how, how it grows. Yeah. And, you know, I'll uh... I'll take that a step further. How does something like that affect our environment? I know there's runoff effects to the natural corridor, um, even for wildlife and for, um, for I guess, the, the natural flow of sediment, too, because we are a, a state at the bottom of the United States. Um, so how does something like that give you a direct impact on the environment? Yeah, so most specifically, the one that I see the biggest is the septic and sewer system, and, and I just spoke about that one. Uh, so other ones that affect the environment could be uh, if they're developing or building in somewhere that has a lot of trees, uh, scrub jays, uh, floodplains, things like that that are going to alter the natural flow of our waters or if it's going to affect the different types of wildlife. If you go in and build where a bunch of trees are, where's that wildlife going to go? So are you making sure that there's still that, like you said, the, uh, the wildlife corridor, are we still having this active flow for wildlife to be able to move throughout the state. Uh, we saw in, in South Florida, which it's out of my uh, planning and zoning area or my county, but where there's human, a road put up or a bridge or uh, houses, it const uh, constricts how the Florida panther can move throughout the state. And they found that they're not, they're not breeding and they're not uh, having baby panthers throughout the state. It's because they're being blocked off by our developments. So we have to make sure that we have a wildlife corridor and that we have uh, spaces under bridges that animals can pass through or, or over uh, uh, natural bridges in a sense that go over the interstate system so that the panthers and that raccoons and all animals can move about the state. You know, those are some of the big impacts and the big things that these local planning and uh, planning and zoning board of directors have in these counties. And I went to the Florida Wildlife Corridor Summit uh, probably about a month ago, and it was on Orlando, and it was amazing to see the number of institutions and uh, whether it's universities, private educators, uh, private groups, private sector and public sectors coming together to figure out the best way to conserve Florida, the best way to con connect and continue the wildlife Florida corridor all the way up to Georgia, and then even at that, working with other states to continue it, to make sure that we have this natural lands throughout the whole country. Uh, and luckily in Florida, we have the Florida Everglades and the Biscayne Bay, and we have a lot of protected areas, but a lot of people don't notice or understand that 
some of the big agricultural ranch lands, they're a big part in connecting that wildlife corridor. Uh, agricultural production, say it's the vegetables or uh, row crops or different things like that, they're connecting these areas and that animals utilize that, that open land uh, to, to live and to be able to reproduce and, and eat. Yeah, Logan, I think what you're, and, and you're, when you're talking about the Panthers, I think it's, um, that, that hits home for a lot of people because it's, it's a beautiful species and little by little, um, we've lost them, but I know that there's been certain things that, that, that they've, that they've done in order to, um, sustain the species and try to regrow population. But what you, what, what you said couldn't, it's, you know, very true. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the development that's going around is not not really, you know, making this possible. So let me ask you a question when it comes to, um, you know, too many people today think of agriculture and environmentalists as opposites. And I know you also work with ACC. And I want you to explain our listeners how the two of those combine for you. Yeah. So, you know, my background, my passion, my foundation is agriculture. I learned about it. Uh, it's, it's just become a big part of who I am. And I love to be able to go out on a cattle ranch and see the amazing wildlife that's going about. And, you know, some of the, the hardest things is that when the price of milk goes up a gallon, you know, that's, it's, it's, we think that's outrageous, but really that money doesn't go all the way down to the farmer. You know, they're getting cents on a gallon and it's harder and harder for agriculturists to pr produce what we need to, to live, whether that's, you know, cotton for our clothing, whether that's milk or different foods for us to eat, uh, or even in the forestry industry for limp, uh, timber to be able to build a house. You know, that's if agriculture goes away, you know, cattle industry, the hide is leather. There's parts, uh, byproducts of, uh, of cattle for glue, for gum, for food, all kinds of things. So, you know, it's, it's, I think the biggest thing with agriculturalists is that they were the first uh, conservationists. Their, their practices, we call them best management practices. They're doing these to be able to, you know, do take better care of the land. And as we learn more and we're, we have innovation and we have new practices, we're able to take even more, even better parts of the land and take care of it. And, um, and new technologies, you know, there's a, it's, it's not, obviously it's not the best to, to put, uh, pesticides, insecticides, those kind of things out there. <clears throat> but to be able to grow, say, oranges, you have to be able to get those pests off our oranges because we live in a state that is very, the climate is just perfect for, like I said earlier, invasive species, but it's also good for pests. And, you know, we have a lot of trades, exports, imports that come to Florida that are going to introduce new insects and diseases. And the technology on these uh, sprayers is that it'll it'll have an AI sense. And when it goes past part of the grove, it'll kind of do a little jet spray of that tree and then it'll stop and it'll go to the next one. And it'll do the exact same thing over and over versus way uh, years ago that decades ago that they would just spray the whole grove, the whole roll row. So we're able to kind of get more precise on that technology on, on spraying and, and the resources that we use. And it's, it's the same that in the waterways um, having phosphorus come down that, Plants, row crop, uh, these different things, they need to have different types of nutrients. But now we're able to test the water that's coming onto a ranch or onto a farm and see, okay, say this is 75% uh, phosphorus. Well, if the crop needs 100%, well, then the farmer can just put 25% phosphorus on 
on the crop versus just kind of taking a guess and putting 50% or 75% of, or whatever that crop needs. They're able to use that technology and the new science to figure out they, they can use less resources. And, and ultimately, that's going to save the agriculturalist money. So I think that's a big kind of go hand in hand. And same with the environment is that they're putting less impact on the environment. And we're also learning new ways how we can help the environment. There's, uh, say, sugarcane, for instance, I did a tour once, and there's a bunch of owl boxes throughout the farm. And it, it made me question, like, why, why are there a bunch of owl boxes? But if they can build a home for the owls, they don't have to put out rat bait or bait for things that are tearing up crops. And they can allow the natural source uh, to eat and, and build a new home for another animal, another species of Florida. And it's innovations and it's new ideas like that. And it sounds so simple, but there's a lot of science that goes into that to make sure and, and to find like, hey, this will work. And we can do this instead of a, an, uh, a different method and uh, more sustainable to the environment and to the agriculture. So it's just coming up with new practices like that. And every day we're learning. Uh, so it, it always excites me to see the new technology throughout agriculture, whether that's a row crop, a cover crop, or if it's in the animal industry. It always It's always uh, very impressive to me. You, you're, you're talking, you're, again, you're, you're preaching to a choir when it comes to to this topic, and I think I think that our, our listeners are going to be um, they're going to be very impressed with this conversation, um, and I'm sure Taylor can agree with me on this. But I'm gonna I'm gonna jump and ask you a question because I think that that there's somebody that needs to be addressed, um, and her name is Nikki Freed. She's our current agriculture commissioner, and she is running to be our next governor. What are your thoughts on her overall job? Because from my perspective, from the voters' perspective, she hasn't done much as far as her job as agriculture commissioner. I remember Adam Putnam rolling up his leaves and walking the citrus groves and addressing the issues that people in Florida cared about. And from what I know, and I'm sure that Taylor can share the sentiment with me, it's been almost four years since Nikki Fried has been our agriculture commissioner, and I have yet to see her rolling up her sleeve and tackling the issues that her job entails. So what are your thoughts on, on the overall job that this current commissioner has done and the perspectives of a, and a future incoming uh, commissioner of agriculture, perhaps in Wilton Simpson, which is our current Senate president and who is running to become the agriculture commissioner? What do you have to say about that? Yeah, so, you know, having the background of agriculture and, and knowing the deep roots that Florida has for agriculture and the huge impact that agriculture plays uh, in Florida. You know, it's, I always say Florida is like a three-legged stool. You have your infrastructure, your building, you have your tourism, and you have your agriculture. And guess which, which leg of the stool was number one when COVID hit? It was agriculture. You know, it's, it's the biggest driver in Florida and for the econ our economic side, you know. But it's also in the winter we feed the whole southeast of the country with our food, with what we grow. And I think in the environment sense that we have to, we have to maintain that, you know, for, for being secure as a nation, we have to have agriculture. We have to be able to feed ourselves. You know, there's so many times in the past where if you can't get resources to your people, what's it's, it's not going to be good. And, and, you know, we, we saw part of that during the COVID pandemic, uh, COVID pandemic when we didn't have a, our food supply chain was crumbling. And not just food, but all our supply chain was 
crumbling. It was not good. And I, and I think people saw it and, you know, we laugh at the toilet paper memes and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to going to the grocery store and not being able to get eggs or not be able to get, you know, fresh vegetables and things that we need to have to be healthy and survive, it's important. And I think it's disappointing that having an agricultural commissioner, which agricultural and consumer services, uh, maybe she's hitting the consumer services side better, but you know, the main part of that department of that position is agriculture. And we need to make sure that agriculture is represented. We need to make sure that we represent not only on the state, but on a federal level. And it's disappointing to me when you have a representative that's voted into office and isn't coming to the farm, that isn't making way for new innovation and things like that for agriculturalists throughout the state of Florida. And it's, it's a cabinet position. So we need to have someone that's in this position that's going to represent agriculture, that's going to push and grow agriculture in the state of Florida, you know, and even if it there's always, you know, I like to say agriculture in a sense is a minority that there's not many people that are in farm. There used to, every family used to have a farm way back in the day. And we see farms getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not because of, you know, in, uh, making corporations or, or big this, big that. It's because no one wants to do it. But those farmers see that somebody has to do it. And a lot of times they don't get their voice out there because they want to sit on a tractor and they want to grow the food and they want to till the land and they want to see the wildlife and see the deer running on their land while they're growing crops, you know, and it's, it takes people. And that's, I went and got a degree in uh, agricultural education and communications because I want to tell the story. I want to talk to the farmers and agriculturalists and, and conservationists and be able to tell the story and the benefit that it has to our economy, the benefit that it has to our state, you know, and, and we all love to go out and see the beautiful side of Florida. And, and really that's why a lot of people come to Florida. We got to protect it and we got to have representation that's going to protect it. That's going to push for, uh, you know, the, the business or the medical and all these different people and, and build relationships throughout the state of our different industries but really tone in on agriculture. You know, it's it's on the cabinet for a reason. It's a very important position and you can't pick and choose what part of the department that you want to represent. You've got to represent the whole thing. We have over 300 commodities in, in Florida and that's just behind California. We play a big role in imports and exports uh, of the country, of our agricultural needs. You definitely sound like a future commissioner of agriculture, Logan. <laughs> Maybe one day. Take that as a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I got to agree there, Marlon. Um, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I'm from a little town. Well, not even really a town outside of Pensacola called uh, Pace. My high school was in front of a rotating peanut and cotton crop. It's It's been there as long as I can remember. And my house is more close, I would say, to J, Florida than anything. And, I mean, that's just farmland out there. Um, and I, I can't remember once when Commissioner Freed would come up here and check in on the farmers. I can't remember once that she did that. Um, and I also think about some of the destruction that happened just next door for us near Panama City. I can't tell you how many times that the forest went up in smoke and she was nowhere to be found. Um, I, I got to be frank that this, uh, I, I completely agree, Logan, and there's a reason that we prioritize that, that pillar in Florida, um, and somebody needs to step up to the plate. 
So, um, I guess on a, on a topic of a little bit more uh, lightheartedness, I do want to ask you this. I know it was a huge uh, topic in legislative session last year for the state where we changed our uh, state dessert from key lime pie to strawberry shortcake. Uh, and I know what, uh, I, I, I want to know what your most pressing thoughts on that are. Yes. Yeah, we got hard po- political uh, fastballs and, and now dessert. No, um, I think our great people of Key West, I think they are probably upset uh, with the change. But being in agriculture, uh, Plant City, Florida is the winter capital uh, strawberry grower of the world. Uh, so I think it is a, definitely a, a large part of Florida. And, and I think the Plant City folks are very happy uh, that their strawberry shortcakes is, are now the state uh, state dessert. So, you know. I love a key lime pie, but I also love those Florida strawberries. So I'm kind of I'm kind of pulled by both ends. Man, I like my strawberries in my smoothie, but man, key lime. There's nothing <laughs> like key lime pie. Key lime pie is key lime pie. No other way. There's just no way. I'm gonna have a very serious talk. If we bring on Senator Burgess into this podcast, <laughs> I am gonna settle him in, and I'm gonna I am gonna ship him personally the best key lime pie Key West has to offer. Maybe he'll change his mind, but I don't think so. <laughs> there we go. It is a, it's a big issue here in Florida. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you, Logan, for being with us this afternoon. Um, we really appreciate you ha- uh, joining our podcast. And Taylor, anything you got to say? No, sir. Um, but I, uh, I do have to say this. Uh, why not both? Why not have strawberries on top of your key lime pie? Mm, there we go. You're being very problematic with that right now. <laughs> I'm being diplomatic. <laughs> that that I don't think I don't think I don't think there could be a mutual uh, consensus when it comes to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no leaning across the aisle. Bipartisanship is not dead. Mm. <laughs> Man. But with that said, we appreciate it, Logan. Uh, well, this has been a great this has been a great discussion. Uh, hopefully, uh, maybe we'll have you on again sometime. Yeah, I uh, thank you for having me. I was really excited when you reached out, and I love the discussion that y'all are having. And uh, looking forward to many more episodes and uh, a very vibrant podcast. Yes, sir. You can count on it. All right, guys. So we're going to start with this inaugural podcast with guests. We're going to start a new segment called Freshly Squeezed, where we give you the latest in Florida local news and Florida state news, statewide news. Um, And I I don't mean to brag, Marlon, but I think uh, this week I've got quite a bit of news in the north region of uh, Florida. So I'm going to start. Yes, I'm going to start with one of the most pressing issues close to home for me. Um, The state has taken control of the Garcon Point Bridge and reduced the toll from $5 to $275. And for you guys who don't uh, know what the Garcon Point Bridge is, it's a bridge between Gulf Breeze and Milton, Florida. I can't tell you how many commuters use that. For so many, this is a huge deal that adds up. I mean, we already know that commuting takes an arm and a leg these days. It's a small fortune. So... For those who take this day in and day out on their work commute, this is a huge deal. The state is taking control, and uh, it's all thanks to a lot of the panhandle legislators who had a hand in that. Uh, we, uh, we really appreciate that, and we appreciate the fact that uh, the Florida Department of Transportation is, uh, is assisting folks up here. We really could use uh, that, that extra levity. Um, in addition... Uh, We just got a primary challenger for Michelle Salzman, 
Uh, former Representative Mike Hill is running against her. He is a uh, controversial figure in Florida politics. Um, many folks will remember his uh, his his previous record. Um, he's uh, he's been not uh, short of supply for controversy and for scandal. We're uh, you know we're all interested in how that race looks. However. Michelle Salzman has been endorsed by Paul Renner, which is a huge deal when it comes to majority approval. So we're uh, we're got we've got our eyes on that race. Um, it should be interesting, but that's uh, that's the newest for District One. Um, now, not maybe not uh, maybe not so specific Congressional District Four, which I know a lot of folks have talked about, especially with redistricting this year, um, has a clear front runner for the Republican primary because we originally thought it was going to be between uh, Aaron Bean uh, and Jason Fisher. And it looks as if Jason Fisher has stepped down to run for property appraiser with a DeSantis endorsement to do so, um, leaving Aaron Bean quickly into the, to the beginning of the race. And although I will say this, that's um, that's a position that a lot of folks are not really thinking about, but it's it's going to be super crucial for local policy is the property appraiser, um, considering the housing costs and the housing market the way it is. It's a huge deal for folks um, to, to have a say in that. So it's it's definitely something to keep our eyes on. But for the Jacksonville area, I think this is a huge, uh, huge piece of news. What do you say? Definitely, I I I personally got to meet uh, Senator Bean um, in my time in the Senate. Um, I think he's a he's a wonderful person. Um, I think he's got the right ideas, and I I can't wait to see how that race look it turns out to be. And I hope he wins. Um, I think we need good steady leadership up in Washington, especially with the gridlock. Um, and everything uh, going on with inflation um, and all the other issues that at some point in this podcast we'll talk about because Florida is being affected by, by these issues that, that I just mentioned. Um, but as we say, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but on to my issues of yes. South Florida, but starting with Fort Myers, it was recently announced that Senator Ray Rodriguez will step down from the Florida Senate um, and that Jonathan Martin, has, uh, who has been endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis, um, to succeed the senator. He is the current chairman of the Lee County Republican Executive Committee. So Miami has been going down to Miami. We have great news in Miami. Miami will be hosting the World Cup in 2026. It was just announced a few minutes ago as we were recording this podcast. Um, and I'm sure that Miami will be doing a great job. And they're more than excited to welcome um, countries from all over the globe to come to Miami and play some soccer. So. Absolutely. You know, I know Mayor Suarez is punching the air right now. I, I can imagine that this deal has had a lot of hands in it, but I couldn't uh, I can be more thrilled for the area because that's a huge source of tourism in an industry that we're already uh, we're already enjoying in Florida. Most definitely. And on to other issues, which has become a very, very, very well known issue, not just in, not in South Florida, but it has taken a national spotlight 
which has been the recent Miami radio stations being sold um, to George Soros um, and other democratic organizations um, that has taken a lot of folks down in Miami, specifically not just the Cuban exile community, but leaders such as Congresswoman Salazar, Congressman Jimenez, uh, Marius Ballart, and others, as well as Florida state representatives, our senators, our U.S. senators, and Governor DeSantis, which has been, I think, a great um, outspoken figure in this moment of, of time. Um, I am very concerned about the future of the radio stations. Um, they have some great figures, um, and I hope, I hope that something can be done about this. And talking about Congresswoman Salazar, she just received a new opponent, not on her Republican side, but on the Democratic side, and it is none other than Senator Annette Tadeo, who was running for Florida governor and has stepped down from her gubernatorial race and has decided to join the congressional 27th district race. Taylor, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, in a word, oof. Um, I, I think I think that uh, after seeing herself in a position uh, far behind not only Nikki Freed, who is lagging far behind in a second place race, um, but Charlie Crist, Annette Tadeo tried to make the most advantageous political move. And to be honest, you know, I think she's really brave to do so because I think Maria Salazar has some of the highest favorability in her community. Um, she has this fantastic ability to communicate with her constituents, and she's also been a great voice on the national stage. Um, in in uh, the House minority, everybody seems to love her and a lot of the things that she works with in D.C. Um, so I think Annette today has got a huge challenge on her hands, uh, and I, I think it's uh, I think she's got a storm of brewing. I think Salazar is going to definitely bring home another term. Absolutely. Uh, and this is, um, for those who are listening, this is not the first time that Senator Tadeo has run for Congress. Um, she ran back in 2016 against uh, Congressman Crubello. Um, it was a very important race down in South Florida and, and, and a competitive one, um, but not, uh, not just that race. It, she's ran for Congress in District 27, where she's running again. Um, but in, 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 in that time, it was with Congresswoman Eliana ross -Lightning. Um, in which the topic of the Cuban embargo was a very important one. And Senator Tadeo was in opposition uh, to, to, let me retract that. Hold on, let me retract that. Um, Senator Tadeo was in favor of eliminating the embargo, while Congresswoman Ross Leighton was a fierce opposite, in, in, in fierce opposition to the embargo and still is, and, and Congresswoman Salazar stands with that position. Um, I know that there's mixed opinions about the Cuban embargo, and there's always been a debate um, under Democratic presidents, it seems, um, about lifting the Cuban embargo. Right now, uh, President Biden, uh, we learned yesterday, has lifted some restrictions on the Cuban, uh, the, the, the Cuban island. And we shall see what other Cuba policies this administration takes. Um, I am a fierce opposite of whatever comes our way when it comes to 
easing any restrictions or easing any policies towards Cuba. I think we need to have a firm opinion and stand clear that the Cuban people deserve freedom. Um, and it is a shame that President Biden, um, out of all the many things he's doing, this yet again is one thing that he's failing in understanding. And I think that the Cuban people, um, especially the Cuban exile community, will let him know in, 20, in, in no, come November how they feel, just like they've done with every Democratic president, including President Obama, President Bill Clinton, where they stand. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in this case, it's it's one of those situations where international policy is also local policy, uh, especially in those communities down south. Uh, I think I think the red wave is coming and I don't think Miami is going to be sheltered from it. I think we're going to see um, some outspoken some outspoken responses. I, I, I think we would I think I think we it would be a great idea for for this podcast to have an episode that specifically talks about that policy. Because just like you said, and you couldn't have been more um, uh, correct about that, the Cuba issue is a local issue for a lot of folks in South Florida. And it affects who, and it affects people at the state level, it affects people at the federal government. When it comes to sending people back to Washington or Tallahassee, do you stand on the issues that people want you to align with? And I think that conservatives have truly championed that issue. So I look forward to, to having this, a further discussion about the Cuba politics from the very beginning when they started to now. Um, it's very different, but clearly I think, um, I, I think that, that that would be a great um, issue that we, can, that we can talk about. And I know that you, Taylor, have a small business. Yes, sir, I do. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, so I think we're also, in this portion, we are also going to start promoting small businesses in Florida um, that we really enjoy, that we've seen, that we've uh, partaken in uh, just along the way, because I think small businesses are so integral to the fabric of not only local policy, but our local communities. So um, this week, I, I know Marlon was so gracious to allow me some, uh, some props for a North Florida business. Uh, but I want to promote Cubs Crawfish. Um, it's in Pensacola. It's located on 4145 Barrancas Avenue in Pensacola, Florida. Um, if you were in the Pensacola area, I couldn't encourage you more to go get a plate of crawfish. Now, I, uh, I, I have been quite an enjoyer of crawfish over the years, and I know that it's getting towards the end of the season. So before the season ends, I encourage you to go out, get a plate um, of mud bugs, as they call them in the South, and uh, and enjoy yourself. Get some good seafood. Get some fresh Florida seafood while uh, while the while the season lasts. Absolutely, and especially during these times, it is it is very important for us not just as a community, but as people. And 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 we consume. We go out to eat. We do a lot of takeout. I think that that. Small businesses, and you can agree with me on this, small businesses are the backbone of each community, no matter where you are. And I think that supporting those small businesses, being there for those small businesses, in the end, it pays back. And if somebody on that other end of the counter or that waitress or that chef that's going to go back home with money to support their family. So support small businesses. And while you said that, I'm going to also Uh-oh, highlight somebody I'm listening. down in South Florida. So I, 
I have a great friend. His name is Isnardo Batista. And if Isnardo is listening, I give you a big hello. And Isnardo, along with his father and his family, created Carly's. Carly's is a, it's not a small business, but it is a, a business where they manufacture, well, let me rephrase that, where they uh, have Spanish uh, products such as uh, sofrito espanol, uh, um, condiments, uh, saltines, and other, and other products that they have in Central Florida all the way down to Miami. So if you go to your local supermarket and you find Carly's, get it. Because I guarantee you, you'll be getting a great product. It's local. It's great. People love it. I use their products. So, so should you. And Taylor, I'll probably send those send some of those to you. You know so what? You I will never turn yourself. down a care package. I'll tell you that. You and I, I might send you some crawfish. You never know. Just uh, <laughs> be, be, keep an eye on the front door. You might have some live crawfish on it. Well, funny enough, Challenge I have never tried crawfish <laughs> before. So I will, I will definitely give yes, that a try. Sir. And I look forward to it. And with that... That's the freshly squeezed edition. <laughs> That's the newest freshly squeezed edition. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a pleasure, guys. Again, follow us on social media. Send us your comments. We would love to hear your opinion. And keep an eye out for other future speakers to come to this podcast. And Taylor, what do we say? Thank you for coming to local podcast. The Keeping It Local Podcast. Nice. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>